Good afternoon, Sunday. Another Sunday fun day for reading. Welcome, everybody. My name is Charlotte. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. This is our Sunday reading day where we pick a paranormal-themed book. It could be about ghosts, could be about UFOs, could be about alien abductions, you name it. And today just happens to be about a really, really scary alien abduction. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are www.californiahaunts.org. But the radio show can be found at californiahauntsradio.com. Okay, so if you're watching, if you happen to be watching from YouTube today, be sure to, and you don't have a subscription to our, our uh, YouTube page, please do that. And that's that little guy down at the bottom right-hand corner. And he's got the Sherlock Holmes hat on, little ghosty with the magnifying glass. That's our mascot. We have more than 250 videos over there that you guys can check out and peruse. And then we're going to start doing some how-to videos as well. Anyway, I want to welcome you all. I'm giving about two or three minutes for others to come in because it is Sunday. And so people want to grab their snacks and sit down and listen. This, this book I'm going to read tonight, boy, it's a humdinger. And uh, I read it many. In fact, we just had this gentleman on California Haunts Radio as a guest a couple weeks ago. And I, I got a hold of him for permission to use the book. And this is probably one of the scariest UFO abduction books I have ever read. And I, I read the Travis Walton book. I also read uh, Scriber's book, Scriber, Whitey Scriber. They're, they're scary in their own way. But this one, this one just kind of got me. And I don't think it was so much the abduction that got me. It was the stuff that happened afterwards to these two people. So that's what we're going to be reading, and it's probably, from according to what I'm say, seeing, it's like a 10-hour read, so we're looking at, like, if we if we do an hour at a time, like we have been, we're looking at, like, 10 weeks to get through this. But it's a fascinating book, and it's also, when we really get really, really deep into it, it's going to keep you up at night. So just an FYI there, you know? So um, just a little warning. But today is Sunday reading day. I may have to switch to my glasses if I feel like I can't see the type. I've got one contact in because I have an eye ulcer right uh, eye scratch or eye ulcer right now. So I'm letting the eye recover. So we'll see if I can do it with one contact in. If not, I might have to switch to my glasses. But I think I made the text big enough that you could see it all the way to New York from California. Anyway, uh, my, again, my name is Charlotte, and uh, I'm the owner of the California House Printer Investigation Team. We're 35 strong up and down the state of California. We also have people in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So we're all over. And the best part is we're nonprofit. We are nonprofit. Technically, we're nonprofit. Okay. We don't take meaning we don't take any fees for helping people with with their issues if they think they might have uh, ghost ha you know haunting or anything like that going on. So uh, yeah, we just do donations. That's all. Okay. We don't charge for our services. So that's what I mean by nonprofit. Okay. Because we're not officially a nonprofit organization. We are just we just don't take money to do this stuff. Anyway, I want to welcome everybody here. If you're new, welcome. We do this every Sunday, uh, usually from six to seven, where we'll read out of a where I will re will read I will read out of a book that is paranormal related in some way. And as I said last week, we finished a Anna Maria Manalo's The Way Through the Woods. Great book, great read, and we're going to be reading another one of her books come May or June. We're going to start that after we get done with this book. But I've been, you know, I've been thinking about reading this book on the air, and so I finally got, I got permission from the author to do it, and so we're going to do it. So I'm excited. 
So hopefully everybody will come in and I'm going to start reading the prayer. Okay, you know what? It's been three minutes. I see there's some, some people in the room. Marisa, hey, I, I can barely make that out, but it's, yeah, Marisa's in the room. Marisa's in the house. Okay, and uh, I'm going to, uh, another minute here, I'm going to start reading the preface and we can get started on this book. And like I said, I'll read for about an hour to an hour, 15 minutes today, like I do every Sunday to get this done. I want to give a heads up. Tomorrow, our show, uh, California Haunts Radio, is going to be on at noon Pacific time. Uh, that's because she, uh, the client made a special request. So uh, it's going to be Coriel Kramer, and she is a pet psychic intuitive. And we're going to be talking to her about different ways that you can communicate with your dog or cat or gerbil or whatever it is you have, boa constrictor, you know, python, whatever kind of pet you have. So she's going to talk to us and tell us how we can do that how we can be more connected to them and how they're connected to us. Like how a pet knows that we might have a sickness, like maybe, you know, I'm not saying cancer, but maybe a bad tooth. Cause I noticed my dog will go to that area where I have to have my tooth finally worked on. She will go over there automatically and lick it and sniff. Like she can tell that I have something going on over there. And another dog I had when I had my congestive heart failure and I started out with that, she would lay on my chest. And then if I breathe funny, she'd get higher on my chest. So, you know, animals do know. So we'll be talking about that. Okay, without further ado, we'll see how I do. And like I said, I may have to switch to my glasses if it gets really bad. I don't think it will, but it's blurry right now. But hopefully, you know, hopefully it won't be that bad a deal. Okay, and I am. The reason why my face is white, <laughs> I look better that way. No, the reason why my face is white is because I am reading off my, um, that's too big. I am reading off my, um. I can do it this way to have one word a page. I am reading off my tablet. So, okay. So here's the preface. What follows is an incredible true story. If these adjectives seem a contradiction, they are not. Because the story I'm about to relate defies both our senses and the reality we share. Yet it's absolutely true. This is the author and his name is um, Ron. Let's make sure I get it right because he was on the show. I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Let me go back. Let me get the author here. It's going to be like that today. Can't you tell? Oh, I got lots of chapters. Give me a minute here. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. As I get started. Ah, here we go. Ron, this is a book by Ron Felber. And it's called The Mojave Incident. Inspired by a trilogy, true story of alien abduction. So here we go. See, it's better to know when I say I, it's not me, right? <laughs> it's okay. Lots of chapters. Okay, let's do this again. Remember, Ron Felber's the, the man here. What follows is an incredible story. If these adjectives seem, contradiction, seem a contradiction, they're not. Because the story I'm about to relate defies both our all of our senses and the reality we share. Yet it is absolutely true. In November, let me get this where I want to, in, yes, in November 1990, while I was on a business trip to California, Paul Moran, a longtime associate, told me about Tom and Elise Gifford and the trauma they endured while in the Mojave Desert some 13 months earlier. It was over dinner and in confidence because few people knew of what had occurred. Frankly, the Giffords were afraid to tell anyone outside of their immediate family and Paul and Tom's closest friend, for fear of ridicule. 
Nonetheless, Paul felt it important that I know. As a writer, the story would be of, of interest to me, and Paul knew it. As a, as, as a friend of the Giffords, he hoped that having someone listen to it and communicate their astounding encounter would aid them in at least coming to grips with the experience. Tom and Elise Gifford are stable, credible individuals. Tom is a 32-year-old supervisor of large construction projects. He is a graduate of the University of Redlands, where he excelled in football as an old league linebacker in the early 1980s. One's immediate impression upon meeting him holds. Tom is a quietly confident, self-reliant man, the kind of witness any attorney would relish having on his side in the case where the outcome hinged on a single individual testimony. As a person, Elise Gifford is no less impressive. Like her husband, she is the product of a middle-class upbringing and University of Redlands graduate. Elise is the mother of three, Thomas, age two and a half, Zoe, Zoe or Zoe, age five months, and Ashley, yet unborn. Oh, and Ashley, yet unborn at the time of this abduction. She is gentle, yet strong-willed, particularly when it comes to her family. The more sensitive of the two, Elise, is the recorder of the fine detail. The problem solver confronted on the evening of October 22, 1989, with a mystery she and Tom will be forced to contemplate for the rest of their lives. This is their story, a crack in the wall, if you will, that offers the rare opportunity to see beyond this reality into another so startlingly different that it will change the way you view man's place in the world forever. Chapter one. Okay, it's not chapter one yet, but this is invasion. So, when we first saw them dropping from the night sky, we thought it was some kind of military maneuver, maybe for Operation Desert Storm. But it was too massive even for that. I mean, there were thousands of them falling, then rushing towards us. So I kicked out the campfire, grabbed my gun, and ran into the back of the camper with Elise. Then we sat there, Indian style, waiting until they came. Thousands of them, thousands of pairs of tiny eyes, red glowing eyes, in the dark around us. Tom Gifford. Chapter 1. La Mirada, California, October 20th, 1989, 12.20 p.m. The getaway weekend Tom had promised seemed a godsend. Elise was thinking, Elise was thinking as she vacuumed the wall the wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in their living room. Outside, Tom was packing the 1987 Ford pickup his dad, had, his dad had lent them for the trip. Complete with camper shell, a double bed, and a fully carpeted interior, she was hopeful its conveniences would make their weekend in the Mojave, in the Mojave Desert, more bearable. Originally, it had started as a hunting trip, an idea she found abhorrent. But now, their plans had expanded to include a stop at Sema Dome, and sightseeing in Mitchell Caverns, not exactly a jaunt to the islands. But these days with the kids and Tom's hectic schedule, just getting away together was enough to satisfy her. Besides, they'd be camping at Mid-Hills, which Tom knew to be clean and well cared for, so it wouldn't really be roughing it. She flicked off the, the Electrolux. Her eyes scanned the living room from toys, baby bottles, and Zwieback toast. The artifacts of a young mom, the, the artifacts a young mom came to expect after having scoured their four-bedroom ranch-style home for the better part of the morning. 
Call her the nervous type or just plain conscientious. But she wanted the house to look right. After all, Tom's parents weren't obliged to babysit and, and agreeing to take care of the kids for the weekend was a big favor. The least she could do was to see to it that the place was clean, with beds made and dishes done. She bent down to retrieve a transformer Tom had just Tom had tucked away beneath the coffee table. Elise turned the plastic toy inward so that the spaceship converted into a tiny green monster howling up from the center of her palm. The face was twisted grotesquely. Whether in fierceness or in pain, she could not tell. She studied it for, for a drawn moment. Why on earth would a silly toy like this seem so strangely significant? She wondered before tossing it into the toy closet in the corner of the room. Thomas, Tommy, where are you? She called. Elise Gifford padded through the hallway and into the baby's bedroom, looking immediately to the crib where Zoe, their five-month-old, Zoe, their five-month-old, lay fitfully asleep. Her hair was blonde and her skin fair like, El like Elise's. Her legs and body were long and extended beneath the cotton blanket. Gonna make a fine sprinter someday, Elise reflected in a flash of memories. Back to her track days at Chafee High School. A natural-born runner. The thought had no sooner passed through her mind when she caught sight of Tom Jr. Already, already a climber at two and a half years of age, he was on the other side of the crib attempting to scale the guardrail. She rushed across the room in time to catch him, then shook her head at the futility of it all. You little monkey, she scolded, holding his face six inches from her own. You were going to pounce on your baby sister, weren't you? She rubbed her nose up against his. He giggled and squirmed. As Elise held him back from her again, staring deep into his crystal blue eyes, for a split second she thought she saw something in them. No, behind them. That caused her pause. Quite unlike his own, quite unlike his own these appeared, the wise and knowing eyes, of a toddler. Not, 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 not of a toddler, I'm sorry. Not of, a, not of a toddler, but of an old man. We know one another well, the eyes seem to be saying. We are the same, you and me, in, in mind, in body, and soul. These reflections were interrupted by the sound of Tom's heavy footfall as his 6'1", 225-pound frame ambled down the hallway towards Zoe's room. Where the hell are they? He pled in exasperation. Shh, Elise hissed back at him. The baby. He held up his right hand in, in a gesture of compliance. Sorry, I didn't know she was sleeping. She screwed her eyes to the ceiling, feeling every minute of their five-year marriage, then gathered Tom Jr. in her arms. Let's see. Okay. Have you called? She asked once they'd entered the hallway. Yeah, yeah, I called. There's no answer. She planted Tom Jr. feet first on the carpet, then bent down to tie a shoe. Then they're on their way. There's no need to have a heart attack about it. You'll get you'll get to shoot your deer or buck or whatever it is you're after. I swear, sometimes I think you're more of a little boy than your son. It's a buck, he pouted. The kind of four-point buck I've been after every year for 15 years out in the Mojave. Tom marched from the hallway into the foyer, then out to the front door. Tom Jr. dawdled after him as Elise watched, still on one knee. Man, she swore quietly to herself. Once outside, Tom walked to the back of the truck and tried back of the truck of the driveway. He extended the tailgate, reached beyond the gas stove, blankets, and cooler to grab the seven millimeter Browning Magnum 
that hung on the rack above the fold-down bed on the camper's right side. He held the weapon up, sight to sight, sight to eye, then took aim. In his mind's eye, he could see the mule deer, near as big as a horse, like he'd seen it one week before, big as it was, tracking the huge animal down and locating it once you did was no easy feat. Its grayish color was indistinguishable from the pinion pine, shrub pines, and hot and high sand. So much so that more than once he'd heard of hunters suddenly discovering a 300-pound buck not 15 feet from them. It wasn't like that when Ron, when Ron, his 26-year-old brother, dad, and he were out in the California's high desert near Tabletop Mountain at the opening of hunting season. No. He had the buckle right, not 100 yards off in the distance, poised like a statue on a knoll just north of them. Since he'd found it, it was his shot, his chance to bag a magnificent specimen, huge with a four-point rack of antlers directly in his gun sight, but he missed. I'm not going to say that word, so he failed. He cursed, letting the weapon fall down to his backside, and he wasn't used to failing. Not in football, where he played first-team middle linebacker for the University of Redlands, and not in business, where as a project manager for Southwest Construction, he never missed an opportunity for a sale, always bringing his project in on time and under budget. Hunting was no different. It was determination that paid off, in the long run. Tom always liked to say, and he was out to prove. Tom always liked, okay. Always paid off in the long run, Tom always liked to say. And he was out to prove it again this weekend. Tom returned the browning to its rack beneath the shell of the camper. Tom Jr. had climbed under the tailgate and was, and was worming his way through the menagerie of camping equipment. Tom took him into his arms. Your daddy's going to bag that deer, Tommy. He promised. You wait and see. On Monday night, after we come home, after the whole family is going to have one hell of a venison dinner. It was then that Tom heard the long-awaited sound of his dad's Chevy Lumina parking curbside. The engine stopped. Two car doors opened and slammed as Tom Jr. rustled his way out of his dad's arms and down to the ground. Geez, what took you so long, he called. His dad, whom they called Wolfie because of his white hair and sharp wolfish features, smiled broadly. Proud to display the overspill of paunch that had crept over his belt line during the past couple of years. He collected Tom Jr. into his arms. Barstow's not around the corner, you know. We hit the traffic on I-15. What's the hurry anyway? Easy for you to say, his son joked. All you've got to do is look forward to his babysitting. I'm on my way to bag a four-pointer. I wish you luck after last week. You deserve it, son. Carol, Tom's mom, came up beside Wolfie. He passed Tom, he passed Tom Jr. into her open arms. Tall and thin in contrast to her ex-marine husband, stout frame, her red hair was cut short in a pixie style that flattered her longish face, excuse me, my allergies, with high cheekbones and distinctive features. Well, if you do get that buck, make sure he's gutted and cleaned before you bring him home. My God. The mess your father's put me through over the years with his hunting. Elise appeared in the doorway, opening the screen door. Halfway as Carol, opening the screen door halfway as Carol near the entrance. Hi, folks. Zoe's asleep. Her formula's in the fridge, and Tom's already eaten lunch. The father and son watched as they disappeared into the foyer. You know, Dad, 
If it's all the same to you, I'd just as soon get on the road. We're all packed and it's already past noon. Wolfie just nodded, knowing that his son could be the son could be one knowing how his son could be once he'd gotten an idea in his head. I'm gonna shift the mic a little bit here because it's driving me insane. So let me do that and I'll up the volume a little bit so I can read. There we go. Inside the house, Elise leaned over the safety rail of Zoe's crib. She kissed let's see, she kissed the sleeping infant tenderly as Carol looked on from the doorway. Tom Jr. at her side. Come on, Elise, it's showtime. Her husband's baritone boomed from the foyer. She straightened up, then gave her mother-in-law a look of exasperation. Walking from the room, Elise took Tom Jr. in her arms. Now you be a good little boy for your grandma and grandpa. Mommy, go? Yes? Yes, she answered. The uneasiness of moments before returning. Mommy, go bye-bye. 12.45 p.m. Tom and Elise were all too familiar with the snarls of stop-and-go traffic on the 605 freeway, and like most Southern Californians, had learned to take it in stride. In the forefront of Tom's mind was the freedom this long weekend had come to represent. Shuttling between jobs at the Norwalk State Hospital and ongoing metro rail construction in Long Beach had left him, tra- had left him tapped out emotionally. Traffic, budgets, unions, gosh, the list, of, the list of problems seemed endless. Yet, here he was about to break loose from the tentacles of L.A., way, way loose to the familiarity and calm of the Mojave. And underlying it all, he thought, a smile of anticipation passing over his lips was the buck. Totally unlike the day-to-day bureaucracy he became embroiled in with the state and local governments at work, here was his chance to hit the mark, to crack that sucker and take him out once and for all. He glanced momentarily to Elise, who was locked in her own reveries of kids and how she and Tom had finally decided on the trip. It was the Thursday before she had recalled when his parents, who lived in Barstow, offered to babysit for them. They'd gone to dinner at Rosita's, a neighborhood restaurant, when after two margaritas, Tom broke the news. The week before, he'd missed the opportunity of a lifetime, he told her, and wanted desperately to go after that buck. What's more, he was leaving this weekend and wanted her to come along. Elisa's first response was no, on, a, on principle, because she genuinely disliked the idea of tracking some poor animal through the desert and killing it. But Tom could be persuasive and felt guilty about leaving her, you know, home for, home for weekends back to back. Point is, it doesn't have to be just hunting, he promised. There's Seema Dome, Tabletop Mountain, Mitchell Caverns. I tell you, Elise, staring, staring down on, to, on the top of those mountains is like standing on the edge of the world. No doubt he was right. There wasn't anyone she knew who understood more about the Mojave than Tom. So given the fact that his parents had already agreed to take the kids and that she could use a break from the house anyway, she agreed. Elise gazed from out of the passenger window. They were headed east on I-15. Already the roadside was taking on the tan, barren look of a desert. Nice of my folks to watch the kids like this. Eh, babe? Awful nice, said Elise, stretching her long arms to the truck top and yawning. I just hope they behave, especially Thomas. He's at the, you know, he's at that age, all right, into everything. Yet. But you know, lately, it's more than that. Something's different. I've been noticing. I'm not sure what. 
Elise reached behind the front seat into the cooler for a can of Coke. She pulled open the flip top, then took a sip. You know how close we are? Especially since he was sick with that heart problem? Yeah. Well, you may not believe this, but lately, I can tell what he's thinking. Honest. And you know what else? He can tell what I'm thinking, too. Even before we speak. He looks at me, and I know that he understands. We just do it. Or get it. With no words exchanged. We just know. Tom took a gulp of soda. Then then depressed the gas pedal down to the floor as traffic became non-existent. I suppose that most moms feel that way about their kids. No, not like this, Tom. It's deeper than that. It's in his eyes, and just not the same at all with Zoe. Hey, I believe you, Tom clowned, seeing the seriousness in her eyes. Honest, I'm just a guy trying to shoot a deer this weekend. Overspent budgets, town council meetings, clairvoyant kids, all of it 50 miles away and likely to get a lot farther. He bent down to produce a glass jar filled with quarters from beneath the truck seat. But in case you forgot, this is a vacation. I thought we might stop at Whiskey Pete's to try our luck at the slots before we turn in for the night at Mudhills. At Midhills. The gravity of Elise's, of Elise's concerns seemed to lift like fog in the midday sun. She leaned over to give him a peck on the cheek. Sounds fine to me, she reveled taking a swig of coke. Let's take these quarters and, and go win us some money. The driving time that followed was a period of, in, of introspection for both of them. Certainly, there were times during their five years together when Elise and Tom wondered if their marriage would last, and it might not have had it, and it might not have, had it not been for Elise's Mormon upbringing and devotion to family. Early along, there were the finances that left them barely able to make their rent each month. Then came baby Thomas and his hospitalization, the loss of Elisa's income, the loss of Elisa's income, and most recently Tom's long hours on the road and at work. These moments of doubt were few and were few and in the long run left them closer than ever. But there were other occasions of equal intensity when both knew they were meant to spend their lives together. The birth of Zoe, five months earlier than <clears throat> the birth of Zoe five months earlier, and the last half year generally was a time like that. Fact is, at this early stage of life, they had it made. Tom's work was demanding, but he'd have it no other way. Tom Jr.'s health was back 100%, and their marriage seemed to have broken through the early hurdles to, <clears throat> to be tempered, strong, and enduring. Such was their, their disposition, and they grabbed a late dinner at a steakhouse near Nipton, then crossed the border in Nevada. This was their time to let loose, and they did. Tom swigging at Coors as he played blackjack, and Elise sipping from a Long Island iced tea as she tried her hand at the slots. In the lounge, a country western band blasted Charlie Daniels Rockabilly, which was just fine with Elise, who loved dance and found and found Tom was a willing partner. Once he'd won $150 at the table, once he'd won, okay, found Tom as a willing partner, once he'd won $150 at the tables, listen to music, gamble, and dance till the early and dance till the early morning. Not a bad way for two homebodies to begin three days away from the rat race. Existence of Southern California. By 2 a.m., exhausted and $70 richer, Tom and Elise began their began their double back from Nevada to the to the Mid Hills camp, some 90 miles away. Well, we won, didn't we? Elise asked. The excitement of the night still with her? Yeah, we did. 
Tom answered absently, trying to navigate the fog and rain that shrouded the I-15. Weather sure changed, like that in the desert, especially this time of year. Elise shivered. She folded her arms close to keep warm, peering idly from out the passenger side window as they turned off the highway headed, headed toward the, the New York mountains. Over the past four hours, the temperature had dropped nearly 30 degrees, and the driving wind had picked up, pelting the truck with sand as it knifed through the thick, clinging mist. An eerie chill passed through her as she gazed beyond the rafts of fog to the silhouette of the volcanic formations. They rose up from the desert floor like enormous waves of earth accentuated by an occasional Joshua tree whose spike branches jutted skyward, like clawing fingers in the night. Tom had told her about the mining operations that flourished here in the 1800s and how even now this alien terrain of canyons and craters was the source of, of cerium. Let's see, cerium, lanthanum, and dozens of other rare earths, which science fiction names related, with science fiction names related to high-tech superconductivity. Her thoughts were shattered by the screeching sound of burning rubber, as she was thrown forward into the dashboard. Jesus, Tom, the truck stopped dead. Sorry, we must have hit a wash, a washed-out section of the road. But the fog had stuff to see. How much farther to Mud Hills? Too far to go in this weather, he hesitated. I was thinking it might be best to pull over and get some sleep. By morning, the sun will have burned, out, burned, all, this, all, burned all this fog off, and driving will be a lot easier. The high she had been on earlier had evaporated, leaving, leaving Elise tired and groggy. I suppose, if that's what you think's best. Tom pulled the truck off the canyon road, not 50 feet from the foothills. He exited, then made his way around as Elise climbed into the back of the camper. Lights on, she cleared the bed while Tom surveyed the surrounding area. Tucked as they were off the road and nestled between two granite and limestone mountains, he turned, satisfied they were safe, then re-entered the truck from the back. Elise had already washed with the, with the bottled water and was sitting on the edge of the bed when Tom's bearish frame filled the back of the camper. I don't know what you have in mind, but I'm sleeping, Elise said as she, as she, as she began undressing. Fine by me, he muttered, setting an Ithaca 12-gauge shotgun beside him. I'm too tired to even think about it. He pondered a moment, but tomorrow, she didn't let him finish. Tomorrow is another day. Tom got under the sheets. Elise, who was of different sort, could not retire so easily. Like a cat, she would explain to Tom she needed to get the feel of a place. And so she did, still battling a sense of foreboding that it seemed would not quit. She peeked from out of the camper's long horizontal side window beyond the rugged desert, brushed along, long, excuse me, I'm ahead of myself, beyond the rugged de desert brush along the foothills. Her eyes traveled straight up the jutting mountainside to the volcanic peaks that shone like castle spires above the dense fog. She shook her head at the unreality of it all and was about to comment on it to Tom when she realized he was asleep. She smiled warmly at the at the sight of her exhausted husband snoring, gun in, gun in the ready, her own sleeping sentry. At last, Elise pulled the curtains closed. She flicked off the interior light and was about to crawl beneath the covers when she felt a chilling sensation quite unlike any she ever experienced. She surveyed the camper from gas-stoved backpacks to sleeping bags 
when her eyes fell upon it. The transformer inverted. The howling creature stood staring up at her, cold and stark as a severed appendage. Chapter 2 New York Mountains, October 21st, 1989, 7.30 a.m. Pencil-thin rays of sunlight broke through the clouds, still remaining from the night before. Elise yawned and stretched lazily. From out the back window, she could see Tom was already up and around, kneeling over a gas stove, a pot of coffee brewing. He looked up and smiled. She waved, then opened the tailgate from within. You look so content, I decided not to wake you. What time is it? 7.30 or so. Want some coffee? She nodded, slipping off her nightgown and, ste and stepping into a fresh pair of panties. Tom poured a cup of hot coffee, admiring the beauty of his wife. Her chestnut brown shoulder-length hair, unbrushed and, and disheveled, seemed sexy. Her body was toned and trim. Her lilt figure nearly returned to the pre-baby days. Still athletic, he thought, a natural beauty. A fact that was driven home to him at moments like these when she was freshly awakened and without makeup. He walked toward the open tailgate, coffee in hand, as she threw on a pair of jeans and a, and a U of Redland sweatshirt. Have I told you lately how pretty you are? he asked. Elise took the coffee from him. Not often enough, she answered coyly, taking a sip. He sat on the edge of the tailgate, feeling a twinge of inadequacy at how busy his work kept him and how physically out of shape he had become by comparison. I know. The job has taken too much of my time. I haven't paid as much attention as I should to either you or the kids. Elise took him in her arms. They embraced. You're a good husband, Tom. There's nothing I'd change about you. They kissed. She eased backward, then shimmied further into the truck, a flood of emotions rising up within her. Tom, the athlete, Tom, the stoical provider, who tried so hard and asked so little of everyone. This was a good man, her heart was telling her. In a quiet, unsensational way, he was everything she'd ever wanted. Tom lay down beside her. I love you, he whispered. They kissed deeply, then made love in the back of their Ford, in the back of their Ford camper, parked off an isolated canyon road, miles from any in, miles from anyone in the high desert of the East Mojave. Elise brushed her reddish-brown hair, looking in the mirror, affixed to the curtain rod in the truck. As Tom began to pack up, he pulled a pair of binoculars from his backpack, then grabbed his seven-millimeter Browning rifle, all essentials to to the off-road hunting. They were about to begin. He made his way to the cab, hunting gear in hand, while Elise struggled with a tangle of, of hair. She studied herself in the mirror, finally noticing the transformer she had discovered the night before laying beside their bed. Oddly, for all the impact it had on her then, it seemed forgotten, now and only vaguely real, as if it had been some minor part of an elusive dream. She put the hairbrush down, then took the tiny toy into her hand as Tom came around again to collect the canteen. Where did this come from, she asked, vaguely holding the transformer up for him to see. Tom Jr. brought it to me yesterday, just before we left. He did? Tom, who was paying more attention to his gear than the conversation, looked up. Yeah, what's the news in that? He's always handing me his toys so we can play together. You know that? Elise shrugged, converting the space creature to a spaceship and back again as she spoke. I don't know. It's just that I put I put it in the toy chest before we left. So he went in and got it 
while you were with Zoe. Did he say anything when he gave it to you? I mean, Tom looked at her with a mixture of surprise and annoyance. He said, space fan. Just the kind of thing you'd expect a two-year-old to say when he hands you a transformer. So what's the big deal? I, I don't know, she stammered, putting the anxiety she felt back in the box of her subconscious. It's just these mountains, I guess. The desert, so far from everything, so strange-looking, kind of gives me the creeps. Tom grinned and kissed her on the forehead. Hey, there's no need to be frightened. You're with the desert rat. The only thing you've got to worry about is what we're going to do with all the venison once I beg that deer I've been telling you about. Elise agreed, the brave trooper. She kissed him back, then left the camper. Tom watching as she walked beyond the foothills to the edge of the precipice where she flung the transformer as far as she could. Strangely gratified, she watched as the tiny creature dropped thousands of feet down to the desert valley below. It was gone, she thought, then gone and out of our lives forever. Within the hour, the camper was making its way along the rugged dirt road between the New York and Providence Mountains. The weather was clear and sunny, now a cool 70 degrees with the air fresh and frothy, cleansed after last night's rain. Tom took the truck over the back roads toward the, toward the Mid-Hills camping grounds, off-roading, hunting off the main roads as Elise... Hang on a second. Yeah, off-roading... Hunting off the main road as Elise, the scout, peered through binoculars searching for the buck and bighorn sheep. Is that one? asked Elise, pointing out some 75 yards north of them. Tom reached for the binoculars, easing his foot from the accelerator. He scrutinized the area as she continued to point beyond the gray-brown desert scrub to a cluster of yucca plants and the shadow of the juniper tree that fell upon it. That's no deer. It's a juniper tree. Shadows can fool you. She took the binoculars back, then looked as if to confirm his judgment. Guess you're right, she concluded. Putting the binoculars down on the truck seat. Okay. It all seems to blend, doesn't it? At first, but the desert has a mud, has as much life in it as anywhere else. Just more subtle, but the different with the different life forms all working together to survive. He pointed to another clump of trees and plant life. Take that Joshua tree. That tree gives shelter to desert wood rats, squirrels, and the like. Birds like shrike and pinion jays make their nests in its branches. Lizards and desert tourists get protection from the sun and the shade of its base. Even the yuccas that surround it kick in because yucca moth fertilize the tree's flowers whose seeds later become its food. All of it so. But there are, if you know what's... But all of it's subtle, but they're, but they're, but, okay, I'm sorry, all of it's subtle, but they're if you know what to look for. So, why do you want to alter that ecology by killing helpless desert deer? Tom looked at her, bracing himself. It was a discussion they'd had before. I've been hunting with my dad since I can remember, Elise. Hunt or be hunted. That's the way it is. On the other hand, maybe we're just as much part of the ecology as any other animal. Maybe hunters are part of what keeps it in balance. And who hunts us? She challenged. He reached towards his 7mm Browning, wrapping his fingers around the midpoint of, of its barrel. No one, he answered, giving her his best smart-ass grin. Because we've got the brains and the weapons to get them first. The two continued back-roading 
south through the high desert woodlands, honeycombed with abandoned mines and ghost towns to the basin and range terrain with its flat top peaks and bone dry riverbeds leading to the pro leaving to the Providence Mountains. Occasionally, Tom would stop the truck to hunt on foot, leaving Elise to relax in the back of the camper with a Coke or a cup of coffee. By early afternoon, with the temperature having risen into the 80s, they found themselves near the point of Tom's choosing beyond Midhills and just north of Mitchell Caverns. It's getting hot. Deer tend to be active dawn to noon, then settle down until it cools off around three or so. Tom pulled out a desert access guide, spreading it across the front seat. As I see it, we're here, he offered, pointing to an area just off Black Canyon Road. If we head up here toward Forche Pass, we can have lunch at a place I think you might like. What place? He raised his palms in the air, staving off the inquiry. It's a surprise. With that, they made their way back onto the main road, departing as quickly for a dirt path as, as, a rugged and overgrown, as rugged and overgrown as any they traveled earlier. Up the Providence Mountains they drove, beyond Forche Pass, to an elevation of nearly 7,000 feet, where at last they, they stopped. Tom left the camper carrying a blanket and cooler filled with soda and sandwiches. Elise followed, binoculars hanging from the leather strap around her neck, both ready for some sunshine and a leisurely picnic. Tom walked up ahead of her the final 20 yards, stopping at the brink of what must have been a drop of 5,000 feet or more. He had put the cooler down and was spreading the blanket when Elise arrived. So what do you think? Unbelievable, she marveled. Her Reeboks making a semicircle in the sand as, uh, as she arced around to view the panoramic of the volcano formations and desert floor that lay before them. It's like the entire Mojave is right here at our feet. I know, he answered excitedly. Out that way, rising up from the ground like an inverted saucer is, is a 75-mile volcanic formation called Cima Dome, the most perfect natural sphere in the world. He sidled up next to her, pointing, and just to the west, that is, that, that is cinder cones. You see those peaks shooting out of the ground like that? They're actually extinct volcanoes. Some of them formed less than a thousand years ago. She craned her head around to him, still cradled in his arms. What else? Elise asked, impressed. What else, what else do you know? Well, there's more. Like how the East Mojave was formed 150 million years ago. The result of fantastic volcano eruptions. You never know it now, dry as it is. But not so long ago, this entire area was covered with rivers and lakes. There's still all kinds of prehistoric fossils around. But then, the weather became hotter and drier, and just about everything that was alive shriveled. Darwinian, huh? Darwinian. Survival of the fittest. Exactly, Tom agreed. Most life forms vanished, but not all. The Indians migrated. The plant life, insects, and animals that learned how to change to adapt thrived. It was life but the life of another kind. Elise had Tom a sandwich and a Coke, then stood drawing a deep breath as she took in the most dramatic view she had ever seen. Well, you were right about one thing. Being here is like standing on the edge of the world. 1.30 p.m. After lunch, Tom and Elise spent the next three hours road hunting, moving in the general direction of the Mid-Hills campground. By 5.30, with their prospects for the day fading, they decided to pack it in and prepare to make camp. Far from the 80-degree heat at midday, the weather had again done an about-face with temperatures dropping back into the 50s and the wind picking up steadily. Sweatshirts and jackets on, once again, 
Tom took the truck west on the Black Canyon Road, Mid-Hills, so named because of its location between the Providence and New York Mountains, was maintained by the Bureau of Land Management. Said to appeal to those wanting to get away from it all, the description seemed an exercise in understatement to Elise as they turned onto Wild Horse Canyon Road. Still, Mid-Hills boasted some of the most distinctive mountain ranges in the Mojave, with a couple dozen well-spaced campsites. Even more important to Elise, there were outhouse restrooms, a convenience she had insisted upon at the outset. Elise's eyes scanned the roadside foliage, stunned at the sudden and dramatic change she was observing. Within a few miles, the terrain had turned from the lake bed desert to woodlands overgrown with pinyon pine and juniper. Slowly, the camper wended its way to the crowded campground, where Tom and Elise searched for open spots. Damn, I can't believe it, Tom cursed. I've been coming here for 20 years, and I've never seen it full up like this. Well, it is, Elise was quick to confirm, con surveying the 30 or so, 30 or more trucks and campers parked around them. There's not even a bad space available. Son of a... He muttered, catching the sight of a BLM ranger, then pulling the truck over. He rolled down his side window. Ranger, he called out, gaining his attention. We're down here all the way from L.A. You have anything available? The young bearded man ambled over to the driver's side. Sorry, unusual this time of year, but we don't have a thing. Couldn't fit a bicycle in here tonight. Tom grimaced. He'd blown it. Instead of whiskey peats and road hunting, he should have gotten his butt up his butt to Mud Hills first thing, then proceeded from there. Okay, officer. Guess we're on our own. He rolled up his window. Already he faced the reality of their spending another night in the camper without facilities. Now, he had to face Elise. Tom rubbed his palm over his face thoughtfully. Inside him was an anger with himself, but deeper still a sense of resourcefulness and, yes, even adventure. The place where Wolfie, Ron, and I saw the buck last week is about 20 miles from here, out toward the Tabletop Mountain. It's in a valley bound up by Tabletop and another smaller range. It's not dark yet. If we were to head out that way, it'd make a perfect campsite, and we'd sure have our privacy. Elise guffawed. Privacy? My God, Tom, I'm, I already feel like we're in the middle of nowhere. It's up to you, but one way or the other, we're not going to be in any campground. Not tonight, anyway. She took a deep breath. Well, you're the desert rat. If you think it's the best place we can find, I suppose we should go. Elise folded her arms tight around her, a sure sign that she was annoyed, Tom noted, and they, they exited mud hills. It won't be so bad. Wolfie and I camp out like this all the time, even your brother, more than once. If you look at it from the positive side, we'll be there first thing in the morning, well rested and ready to go. Besides, I've got a steak and a bottle of wine that will go pretty well together for dinner tonight. Elise giggled. He put his arm around her as she slid over toward him, and they traveled at a 40-mile-per-hour 40, 40 clip south to, Black, south to Black Canyon Wash. Tom slowed the truck, then took a left onto a, the rocky crater-ridden trail. Scattered about and separated by hundreds of acres were several ranch houses that Tom had passed during previous trips. But other than those, there was little sign of civilization, except an occasional no-trespassing sign posted by recalcitrant landholders. Elise swallowed hard at dust, as dust settled in along with a chilling and unrelenting wind. Look, Tom blurted suddenly. See? See them? 
out in front of us? Quail. A whole flock of them. He stopped to camp for coal in his tracks. What are you doing? Tom plucked his 12-gauge from out of the gun rack behind him. Quail season opened yesterday. I'm going to shoot us some dinner. Without wasting a precious moment, he flung open the truck door, jumping out, jumping out to the roadside as, as the covey of birds ran for cover. Perfect, he whispered to himself, carefully taking aim. Tom, he heard Elise's voice calling. Tom, his eyes diverted. Please don't shoot them. What? Please, I'm asking you not to shoot them. Deer are one thing, but not them, not these quail. Again he took aim, then watched through his gun sight as they passed out of range. If you don't beat all, he muttered, returning the shotgun to the side and re-entering the truck. Words were few and far between as they crawled along the Black Canyon wash to a series of unnamed trails leading to Woods Mountain. Are you sure you know where you're going? Tom just stared at her. I guess that means yes, he nodded. Well, it looks to me like the last people to go down these trails were in covered wagons. Still no response. She leaned over and pecked him on the cheek. Thanks for not shooting those poor birds, he grunted. I don't suppose I'm here to shoot quail. But I'm telling you now, if that buck comes within ten miles of me tomorrow, he's a goner. You understand? Understood, she answered unhesitantly, shuddering at the cold and <clears throat> the cold and prospects of tricking along those uncharted back roads of the dark. Tom flicked on his headlights as night began to fall, and the radiance of a bright crescent moon became visible above them. Well, it may be a little chilly, but sure clear as can be. Yeah, good thing, too. With those trails in the shape they are, how much farther? Not far at all. As a matter of fact, he said, turning the wheel sharply to the left and stopping at the lip of the woods, the place where we'll be spending the night is right down there. He put his brights on, helping to eliminate the desert. Helping to eliminate the desert basin between Tabletop and Woods Mountains. It's a valley, Elise uttered, a shiver passing through her bloodstream like jagged particles of ice. Yeah, valley, like I told you before. Tom did not notice the strength of emotion in her voice, nor the pervasive fear she was feeling but a queer unspoken no notion passed through her mind as they began their descent down the craggy mountainside. It came from a distant part of her, subconscious, framed in the scene from an old movie she'd seen years ago as a child. To her now, it was as if they were entering the valley of the Little Bighorn. Chapter 3 Behind Tabletop Mountain, October 21st, 1989 7.30 p.m. Wolfie had made a lot of right decisions in his day. But buying a two-wheel drive Ford pickup instead of a four-wheel wasn't one of them. Not only was the truck struggling to make it down the Rocky Mountainside, but Tom knew he'd need to be especially careful when he reached the canyon base, <clears throat> where, laced among the scabrous desert floor, was a wash of soft silt created by generations of rain and erosion. A trip into one of those would be a, a trip into one of those would be a, would be one way. He was thinking as they forged as they forged their way downward, the piercing rays of his high beams sending droves of small game scurrying for cover. Are you sure you know where we're going? Asked Elise suddenly. What's that supposed to mean? Tom navigated the camper through an obstacle course of chawl gardens, sagebrush, and piles of granite rock. It means that I'm nervous about camping out here all by ourselves like this. Last night was one thing, 
But God, Tom, anything could happen to us out here. He pulled the truck into a well-protected belt of high ground near the base of the woods, uh, near the base of Woods Mountain. With the smaller range to the truck's back, directly facing them some 500 yards across the desert basin, stood Tabletop Mountain. Its huge flat-top configuration, towering nearly 7,000 feet, like some strangely truncated pyramid. Why would you be nervous? I mean, what could go wrong? Tom switched off the ignition. Elise looked straight ahead to the huge granite mountain, bathed in starlight. So bright you could read a book by it. Rapist, she answered without thinking. Tom winced. You're joking. No, I'm not joking, she blurted, a vague, a vague sense of hysteria rising up in her voice. There could be intruders like a motorcycle gang or something. They could rape me and kill you and no one would ever know about it. He started to laugh, but stopped suddenly smitten by her chilling gaze. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I know it's possible, Elise, but I'd protect you and I swear you'd be a hundred. I swear you'd be a hundred. No, a thousand times more likely to get assaulted in L.A. So what do you say? Let's set up camp, forget about all that other stuff and enjoy ourselves. Elise's lips contracted into a small, thin slit, as if, as if to suck in and contain the premonition of danger that had haunted her since the weekend began. You're right, she answered in a small voice. I don't know what's been happening to me. I'm so sensitive about everything. Tom dug a fire pit in the sandy ground, not 20 feet from the camper, then lined it with rocks while Elise brewed a pot of coffee on the gas stove set atop their open tailgate. The temperature was again dropping. Tom, no Tom noticed as he collected branches and juniper logs from the surrounding thickets. The campfire would be a nice touch and would keep them warm later in the night when they'd want to snuggle under a blanket, roasting marshmallows and drinking wine. He smiled to himself, considering that picture in his mind. As much as the buck he'd come, as much as the buck he'd come after, that was the moment he wanted most to capture. He thought then. The two of them huddled together beside a campfire, the desert sky so clear you could see beyond the stars straight through the very soul of the universe. The pile of dry kindling and wood burst into flames the moment Tom put a match to it. He admired his handiwork momentarily before making his way to the back of the camper, where Elise had already taken refuge. She sat inside, now wearing a windbreaker, sipping from a steaming cup of coffee. Tom took a container in hand and poured himself a cup. Fire started, and that's left for you to do. All that's left for you to do is enjoy your coffee. I'll cook up some steak. I'll cook, I'll cook up some steak and beans. Later on, we can roast marshmallows. Elise smiled. You take care of me pretty well, don't you? Damn straight, he shot back, opening a can of beans and emptying it into a pot. So what do you think the kids are doing now? Tom laid the two New York strip steaks across an oversized frying pan, sizzling with butter. Well, what time is it? He asked, glancing at this time of sportsman. 7.30. I figure Zoe's asleep and Thomas is just driving my parents crazy. Elise chuckled, probably spoiling him rotten. Ever notice how hyper Tom Jr. is after they watch him? That's because he and Wolfie sit around all day eating ice cream and chocolate together. Yeah, they're like two old pals. I'm not sure whether Wolfie's a bad influence on Tom or if Tom's a bad influence on Wolfie. But they're a peril, right? He reached, he reached inside the camper for a Coleman lantern. Jeez, it's dark. Can hardly see what can hardly see what I'm doing. Tom lit the Coleman lantern. 
He reached a place at the top of the camper shell, then paused for an instant to comprehend the odd tingling sensation that crept like a chill up from the base of his spine. All at once, and without apparent cause, he felt that someone was watching. He was about to make a joke of it. Here they were, not another human being within 15 miles, and he felt they were being spied on. Funny, except that he had, that the, except that he had, had that same feeling once before, but only once. He remembered the chilling tingle plied its way through him until his entire body was left quaking in a cold sweat terror. Cautiously, and the precipice of some nightmarish chasm on the precipice of some nightmarish chasm, Tom glanced over his left shoulder. Relief. There was nothing. The base of the mountain. That's all. But then, as if drawn by some sixth sense, his eyes traveled up the sheer mountainside still farther, all the way to the top, stopping at the site, that, stopping at a site that left him falling, tumbling into a bottomless pit of horror. Like an atomic flash, the memory of a 1975 sighting erupted. It had happened 14 years earlier while, vaca while vacationing with his parents at Lake Mojave. But in that instant, the entire experience returned to him in a tidal wave of sensation. The cut on his face smarting, the pounding of his heart, like a time bomb set against his ribcage, the frantic race to the safety of his parents' campsite, young Keith's panic and his own raging terror. He had seen that light, that object before. Thirty feet in diameter, pulsating, its brilliance, a radiance that eliminated his most unsettling dreams and deepest subconscious fears since childhood. He did a double take. He felt it and sensed him because the instant his eyes fell upon it, the object dropped behind the mountain, attempting to hide from him. Tom? Tom, what's the matter? The stakes, they're burning. He fumbled ineptly with the frying pan, his hands clumsy as, as tenterhooks, nearly knocking it off the stovetop. Nothing. He turned the stakes over. A falling star is all. I just saw it. I just was watching it. You sure you're okay? Elise puzzled over his sudden look of distress, even as Tom worried about her. He'd say nothing of it. Pretend everything was normal. How could he do otherwise? Through some extraordinary intuition, she was already petrified of what might happen. Why else would something so harmless as Tom Jr.'s transformer bother her? And what about the morbid fear of rape and murder and the rest? No, it was his place to protect Elise from all of what he was now feeling. Besides, there could be explanations other than an extraterrestrial craft. Maybe he'd imagined it. Maybe what he had spotted was an experimental military plane from, Nulls, from Nullis or another of the nearby bases. Certainly, the least likely of any of these was some kind of spaceship. Hadn't he spent the better part of his adult life trying to forget what he was certain he'd seen at Lake Mojave 14 years earlier? This night, as a married man and father of two, he struggled in quiet desperation to convince himself it was all some kind of mistake, then and now. Furtively, he glanced again to the mountain peak, some 1,000 feet above, but there was nothing further to be seen, just a sheer granite and limestone mountain blankly, stoically rising up from the desert floor. Tom collected the stakes onto a platter, then walked to the campfire where Elise had set two plates, two sets of eating utensils, and two glasses of, and two glasses on a, on a blanket. 
He placed the platter near the center, where Elise sat huddled close to the campfire, silently knowing what he had seen could not be explained away. More, that behind the woods mountains, some 200 feet from where they camped, still lurked something. It hadn't left and wouldn't, he suspected, though he could not be certain why. He skewered a steak, placing it on the plate in front of, in front of her. Next, he served the ranch beans and French bread, then sat down beside her. Not talking much about your buck lately. Did you forget about him? No, no, I haven't forgotten. Just biding my time till morning, when we start again. Elise savored her steak as Tom opened a bottle of Chardonnay, then poured two glasses full. You know, having a meal outside like this is kind of special. She took a sip and then snuggled next to him. I don't think I've ever seen a night so clear. Deserts like that, no pollution, so the stars seem brighter and a lot closer, like it's like its own world out there. And noisy. I always thought the desert was quiet at night, but just listen to all these all these sounds. They found themselves listening. Indeed, the nighttime desert was a cacophony of dissonance. The steady buzz of insects and rustling of small game punctuated only occasionally by a coyote's piercing howl. Yeah, they make a they make a racket all right. And though you can't see them, there are animals all around us right now. In the brush over there, he said, motioning to their right, near the base of the mountain, and all through this valley. What kind of animals, asked Elise? Donkeys, coyotes, kangaroo rats, you name it. And don't forget bighorn sheep and mule deer. They've got to spend the night somewhere. They've got to spend the night somewhere. My guess is they're here in the valley, not far from not far from us right now. Elise made a face. Rats? Tom tore a piece of bread from the loaf, then tossed it near the foot of the large mesquite tree. Within seconds, a platoon of kangaroo rats was leaping toward it, biting tiny pieces and trying to carry it <clears throat> away back into the sagebrush with them. Elise laughed. For the first time since the night they had spent at the Whiskey Pete's, even, okay, I'm sorry, excuse me. Elise laughed for the first time since the night they had spent at Whiskey Pete's. Even Tom managed to chuckle. The gnawing anxiety of the of the moments before, flying from him at the sight of the strange-looking rodents, tugging and pulling at the water bread. They're not really rats, not the kind you'd find in the city anyway. More like squirrels, except they hop instead of run, like little kangaroos. He took a gulp of wine, then tossed another and another piece of bread, anxious to gain, anxious to gain even these few seconds of respite from the macabre truth he held, but could not yet bring himself to acknowledge. Together they laughed. Now, as the kangaroo rats leapt and jumped, scrambling to the, scrambling to earn their daily bread. Hey, Silly, suddenly, how about those marshmallows? Tom nodded. You get the marshmallows from the truck. I'll get the sticks to roast them on. Tom made his way toward the nearby mesquite tree. He pulled the pencil-thin twig from from a branch. Could it be? Could it be that somehow, some way, he had mis he had been mistaken in what he thought he'd seen? His eyes drifted up toward the crest of the, wood, the woods mountain. He knew in his mind and heart that he had seen something, felt something, unearthly. So why now did it seem so distant? How could he doubt now what he had seen with his own eyes such a, such a short time ago? Tom, Elise called from the, from the bedside campfire. His head jerked away from the mountaintop, as if his eyes had been glued to it. 
I'll be right there, he replied, regaining his composure, then briskly walking toward the campfire. He handed her a twig. She put it through she, she put it through the center of one of the marshmallows, then placed it over the fire. Tom followed suit. You must know a lot about the stars, she said, looking out into the ebony sky. What was Wolfie working at the Gold, at Goldstone for all those years? Wolfie's an electrician at the tracking station, not an astronomer. But I know a little. It's a hobby, it's a hobby of his that kind of rubbed off. Do you know the constellations? Like Ursa Minor, Orion, Orion, sorry, <laughs> and all those? He took his brown marshmallow from out of the fire, then nipped at it. Yeah. Some Wolfie, my mom and me, used to make a game. Hang on a second. So sorry. Some, oh yeah, yeah, some. Wolfie, my mom and me, used to make a game out of it. You know, like out there. He said, pointing across the valley over the top of the tabletop mountain to Aries. What constellation is that? At least study the grouping of stars for a moment. The glow of the blazing campfire illuminating her face as she, as she shook her head in the negative. I don't know which. That's Aries, the ram. See how the stars connect? You've got to use your imagination, but it's there. Well, it doesn't look like a ram to me. Sometimes the stars don't look anything like what they're supposed to be. In ancient times, people thought they were fixed in the ceiling of a, of a dome with humans at the center. So they'd, so, so they'd used constellations as, as symbols to remind people of some significant event or an important king or something. Like Leo, the lion. A constellation doesn't look like a lion, but when it was named, the, <clears throat> when it was named, the summer sun was in that part of the sky, and and the heat was fierce as a lion. Get it? At least pointed to the northern sky. Which is that? I'm not sure. Pegasus, I think. At least popped the marshmallow into her mouth. How about that? She asked, pointing beyond the horizon. That's Algol, the demon star, part of Perth, part of Persis. Algol is the biggest and brightest because it's a double star. If you had a telescope, you could see the two of them revolving around each other. Elise turned to her left, eyes rising to the sky above, Woods Mountain. Well, if that's a double star, these must be triples because they're a lot bigger and brighter than that. Tom chortled at Elise's sense of wonderment. Starstruck as a child, he was thinking, okay, Starstruck as a child, he was thinking as he twisted around to his left then gazed to the horizon, just above the 1,000-foot mountain. His sense of shock was physical. Like a deer he had once gutted, he could feel the cold steel of a hunting knife splaying him open from stern to crotch. In the sky, some 200 yards to the right, straight up and set like, a di like diamond studs in the ceiling of a dome, were nine objects, shining so intensely they created daylight around them. What are they, Tom? asked Elise na naively. They can't be stars, can they? Tom squirmed. It was as if someone had knocked the wind out of him. His face was sheet white, and his hands were shaking. Weather balloons, he bluffed, citing the first explanation that popped into his mind. At least his face twisted with skepticism. But look, she exclaimed, pointing excitedly, they look like mylar. So see how shiny? And they must be connected, she uttered with a sudden sense of awe. Because they're not because they're moving together, like pearls on a string. That would fit, Tom lied in a hollow voice, ringing with terror, as his eyes riveted to the black ceiling sky. He could feel he feel its presence forming, like some hideously misshapen figure, 
at the outer fringes of his consciousness. They were back, he thought, and his guts were hanging hanging out of his wide-open belly. Maybe they're balloons, balloons connected by some kind of wire or cable. Elise shook her head, no, even as she said yes. Well, okay, you're the desert rat, but they don't look like weather balloons to me. Tom walked to the back of the camper, eyes never diverting from the nine glowing orbs. He poured himself a cup of coffee, then walked back to the campfire, where Elise still sat, sipping wine and watching. We could stop there at 708, or we could continue and finish the chapter. I don't know what anybody wants to do. Let me see how far I have to go. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and we'll continue with this next week, because it is 708, and I know people, you know, it's Sunday, people got kids to get to, to get to school and stuff. So that's the first hour of reading for this book. Next week, I'll be sure to read my glasses if I don't have my full contacts, because that was kind of awkward for me and probably for you too, but um, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight, and we will continue from this point next Sunday night at 6 p.m., and again, tomorrow, California Hunts Radio will be on at noon. And the replay will be, of course, will be available for anybody that misses it. But we'll be on at noon tomorrow with Coriel Kramer uh, to talk about animal connections. And again, I want to thank you. Um, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. And uh, I will see you tomorrow. I will see you tomorrow at noon. Have a good evening, guys.